0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's podcast, we'll first be covering Pope Francis and Capitalism. Dan Huger, Acton's Librarian and Research Associate, will be speaking with Robert Waples, a Research Fellow at the Independent Institute and Professor of Economics at Wake Forest University. They discuss the Pope's understanding of economics in the new book, Pope Francis and the Caring Society, edited by Robert himself. If you want to hear more about this topic, Robert will also be making a trip out to Grand Rapids for his lecture series event on May 17 at the Acton Institute. Make sure to save your spot and register at acton.org under our events page. Then on Upstream, where we talk all things culture, Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Robert Hudson author, musician, and poet on the connections between singer Bob Dylan and writer Thomas Merton. So without further ado, let's begin.
1: Hello, this is uh, Dan Huger with the Acton Institute. I'm Acton's uh, librarian and a uh, research associate, and I'm here with Robert Waples, who's a research fellow at the Independent Institute, co-editor and managing editor of the Independent Review professor of economics at Wake Forest, and uh, director and review editor of eh EH.net. He is also the editor of the book that we'll be discussing today, uh, Pope Francis and the Carrion Society. Uh, Robert, welcome to Radio Free Acton.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: This is a great book. I was kind of riveted all the way through my copies, Got Dog Ears, um, on basically every other page. How is it that the idea for this
2: book uh, came about? So the people at the Independent Institute, seeing that Pope Francis has a lot to say about the economy and that people pay a lot of attention to him, proposed the idea that we run a symposium on his economic thought. I was very hesitant at first because I wanted to make sure that we weren't you know, treating the Pope unfairly. Uh, Our views, I think, generally aren't always the same as his. And so I was very, very cautious going in and actually prayed a lot about it. Uh, But then I decided that I I thought we could do a good job of treating the Pope with respect for both his person and, you know, the dignity of his office, but also engage in the kind of dialogue that he asks people to engage in, uh, you know, so frequently, including in the encyclical Laudato Si'. So we pulled together a group of economists um, and published this as a symposium, then added some additional chapters and got a really nice uh, forward written by Michael Novak and a, a good conclusion and turned it into a book. And the book has just received tremendous attention. So we're very pleased with how everything turned out.
1: Wonderful. There is really a lot of authors in this. Acton's director of research, Samuel Gregg. Uh, contributed a chapter. A lot of other folks um, who will be familiar uh, to Acton's audience, Philip Booth uh, contributed a piece, and uh, Andrew Youngert. Um, There's just a lot of excellent, excellent folks involved in this. From that forward by Michael Novak, he He begins uh, talking about how the education of each pope begins anew when he is elected to the office. What is the lesson that you want to impart both to your more general readers and what particular lessons would you hope that Francis would learn during his papacy?
2: And so I guess the education begins anew uh, because of the immensity of the office and just uh, how many demands you have on your time and how many different issues you have to pay attention to. But I also think that uh, what's also happening is that the individual who becomes pope moves out of having served you know, in a probably national capacity, moves from that country, and then has to take a more global outlook on things. And so I think this is probably especially important, For Francis moving from Argentina and the worldview that you might get from Argentina and then moving to the global position.
1: Yeah. How has Pope Francis's understanding of economic questions been shaped by his own Argentine background?
2: And so Sam Gregg, your own Sam Gregg, has a wonderful chapter in the book, Understanding Pope Francis, Argentina, Economic Failure, and the Teologia del Pueblo. And the basic argument is that if you are surrounded by the Argentine economy and mistake it as kind of a universal model for how markets work, you can get a very distorted picture. The Argentine economy was once basically a world champion, if you will. A little more than a century ago, it would have been at the top, one of the top two or three countries in terms of income per person in the country. Uh, it slipped further and further in the relative rankings over the years, and most economists say that the major reason for this is the policies that were implemented, especially, you know, Juan Peron, the Peronistas, this corporate uh, corporatism that they adopted, and and then which has come back, especially with a vengeance in recent years, in which the government really is is calling the shots in the economy. The capitalism you have is what we'd refer to as a crony capitalist, right, a crony capitalism. To be successful, it's not that you outcompete compete your competitors and offer the customer a better product at a better price. It has a lot more to do with how good your connections are and, and what you can do with government to keep competition at bay. And so, you know, Sam makes a very important argument that that gives a very distorted view of what a capitalist system, you know, is in its fundamental nature. It, it, it's one that where you would have a very visceral criticism of capitalism, if that's what you saw as capitalism, because it's a capitalism, it's a, a one of exclusion rather than the inclusion that the Pope is looking for. And, you know, I think that most of us are looking for.
1: In what ways are Pope Francis's understanding of economics, in what ways are they consonant In what ways are they at odds with the understanding of most economists?
2: I think that when most economists offer policy advice, it's tempered with a view that a competitive market can work very well at solving the key economic problems that we face. You can go back to you know, the writings of Friedrich Hayek on this, that capitalism is solving the three big problems that an economy faces, the knowledge problem – the incentive problem, and the learning problem. You know, how do I know how useful, valuable my resources are? I don't really know that until I start trading with other people in a competitive economy. How do I make sure that these resources aren't wasted and are put to their highest valued use? There's incentives there, and the key incentive is the price. And if the price gets higher, we consider this thing more valuable, so we, you know, use it – Uh, more and more sparingly, and we make sure that we don't waste it, uh, key resources like that. And then the learning problem, and that's the function of profits. If I've done a good job in organizing my my firm, uh, I will earn a profit. If I haven't done such a good job at meeting the demands of the market, using my resources efficiently, I'll earn a loss. And I'll learn from those things about what I should do in the future. If I don't learn, I probably get driven out of business, and those who learn quicker uh, earn more profits. And, you know, provide more value to the customers. And so that's the framework that most economists see when they think about how do markets work. That it's filling that you know those, the, those fundamental roles so well that when you adopt a market economy and the capitalist institutions that go with it, especially property rights, that it's just going to lead to just a flourishing of economic prosperity. And that's what we've seen around the world as economies have moved toward that dramatically, of course, in in recent decades, when China, for example, Mm -hmm. started using these sets of institutions, and not quite to the same degree we do here in the United States, but lots of other countries have done that as well. And so, you know, the World Bank estimates that well over a billion people have been lifted out of that absolute poverty, where you're living on less than $2 a day. More than a billion people have been lifted above that poverty line in just the last couple of decades because of this additional economic freedom that we see.
1: How does Pope Francis stand in relation to his predecessors
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: on um, sort of economics as a science and and Mm -hmm. also on on sort of economic policy issues?
2: There's been a very broad stream of Catholic teachings on this. In fact, you know, going all the way back to the source, to the scriptures and to the Gospels and what Jesus said, Jesus didn't lay out an economic blueprint by, by any means, right? But instead laid out principles, and we have to judge prudentially what is the best way to structure an economic system to achieve those things. So he said we should love our brothers as our neighbors, as our brothers, right? We should take care of the poor. What's the best way to do those kinds of things? And so there's been a debate about those. And one size doesn't fit all. Uh, you, we read in the Acts of the Apostles that the, you know, the early Christians sold their possessions off and lived uh, like communally. They essentially lived as socialists. We still have socialism today in our own households my household is socialistic. I share my resources with everybody else. They do that in convents and in places like that too, right? But that doesn't always work because the bigger the group gets and the less people know and care about each other, people start free riding on it, right? And they start abusing the system. And so when we want to do this to a, you know, a broader nationwide or global scale, we're going to have to adopt some different incentives. And it just looks like the incentives that work best to most economists are those ones that are more in the direction of the free market. But I think popes have kind of moved from one stride of, side of this broad stream to another side of the stream over the years. They had the same core principles, but some of them will kind of see m- that more can be done in the market. Uh, John Paul II uh, had some of the most favorable things to say about a market economy of any pope. He had lived under communism, so he really knew what the alternative was like. But I think that, you know, Francis kind of swings back to the other shore of that stream, being a lot more critical of a market economy and how it will work and more in the direction of, you know, needing collective solutions and global solutions. And there are lots of problems for which we do need collective and global solutions. But, you know, he pushes this over a little farther in that direction then I think a lot of the contributors to this book would be comfortable with, you know, just based on the track record of those things.
1: Absolutely. And there's, there's ways in which we as a society deal with the needs of the vulnerable, both collectively and on, on an individual level, where we don't resort to state intervention in the mm-hmm. market. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a place for personal and church giving. What sort of role does that personal... Um, and that in uh, those acts of solidarity outside of the state have, um, in Francis's view, and and what and what might be some things that state intervention would inhibit on that level of civil society.
2: You know, I think that Francis is trying to get to the same goal that any Catholic. Any Christian would want to get to. His emphasis tends to be more on solving these problems by turning more of the task over to the state. I guess his view is that you know individuals have kind of failed in some of these tasks. Uh, We haven't been generous enough at an individual level and so we need to do so more at a collective level when there's kind of coercion involved and you're forced to do good i'm getting a little skeptical that you're actually doing good and and so you know there's definitely a tension there but i think especially and, and the book talks about this as well environmental problems that's one that francis definitely thinks that needs to be solved more at a collective level and there's some very good chapters in the book that talk about this uh, but especially point out that we can harness the system of a free market economy to solve those environmental problems as well. One key to this is something that economists call the environmental Kuznets curve. And you kind of plot out pollution levels in different countries and compare them to the average income levels in those countries. What you see is that perhaps at first things get dirtier as economies are developing, we saw that happen in China, but then they reach a peak and they start coming back down and the environment gets cleaner and cleaner as economies get richer and richer. And one of the keys to this is that people in those economies are now wealthy enough that they can afford to spend some of their resources cleaning up the environment. Uh, the environment is what economists call a normal good. We demand more of these things as we have more income to spend. We demand a cleaner environment, and we can afford to do it, and it's expensive sometimes to put that technology in place. But the richest countries now have you know, the best uh, air pollution levels and water pollution levels and all those, those kind of things that are going to be harming human health. Another thing uh, that economists would point out is the power of property rights in solving some of these economic problems.
1: What does Pope Francis offer us that's helpful that despite these sort of economic misunderstandings mm-hmm. and misjudgments
2: i think he offers a lot that's helpful especially if you were to read say the encyclical laudate si on um, caring for our common home the what they call the environmental encyclical and so uh one thing that he he does emphatically there is just warn us about the seductions of the market and worshiping mammon instead of God, right? And and he talks about us getting pulled into this whirlwind of frenetic activity. How can one listen to the words of love amid the constant noise, the interminable and nerve-wracking distractions, and the market gives us a lot of distractions, right? Buy this latest phone. It's just so awesome. It's going to make your life that this car is better than your car, better than your neighbor's car, you know, that kind of thing. We can't get pulled into that kind of thing. And so if the market is disserving somebody these days, it may be that it's disserving the richest of us because with its allurements, it pulls us away from the eternal things to these mere material things that the market offers. And we've got to steel ourselves against that uh, in order to live the moral lives that we're intended to.
1: Absolutely. There's a great piece in your introduction where you, you talk about marginal utility and Francis's vision of that <laughs> um, as opposed to that of standard economics. I thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do this.
2: Um, let me add one thing. Let, oh, yeah. let me add one thing before we go, and that is Uh, I'm speaking to you on uh, April 26th, and here's the Pope's prayer intention for April. The prayer intention is for those who have responsibility for economic matters, that economists may have the courage to reject any economy of exclusion and know how to open paths. And so I would like all of your listeners to pray that along with the Pope and the rest of us.
1: That is an excellent piece of counsel. Um, You will be with us uh, next month uh, for our Acton Lecture Series here in Grand Rapids. Uh, The subject of your talk, or the title of your talk is, Can a Capitalist Society Also Be a Caring Society? A Dialogue Between Economists and Pope Francis. Uh, And we hope that uh, all of our listeners will attend. Uh, Thank you so much again um, for spending the time with us.
2: Great, and I'm looking forward to visiting you in a few weeks.
1: Also, if listeners are interested, uh, Bruce Edward Walker recently wrote a review of the book for the uh, Act and Power blog. Uh, He wrote that, I think it was published on April 18th, so it's an excellent review. Be sure to check that out and also check out the book.
0: Is there a moral argument for free trade? Join us for the next Acton On Tap event at the Knickerbocker in Grand Rapids on May 29 to hear Hillsdale College professor Michael Clark speak about the common misconceptions of trade deficits. You can register for this event at acton.org slash events.
3: Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and this week we're talking to Robert Hudson, who is the author of a new book released by Erdman's called The Monk's Record Player which uh, looks at Thomas Merton and what he was playing in 1966 and a little bit into 67, up until his death in 1968, and that includes uh, one of my all-time favorite artists, and that's Bob Dylan. Hello, Bob. How are you? I am fine, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, terrific. Let's let's uh, set this up in a little bit of an interview style. I I, I like to have conversations with, with the individuals who visit me here, but uh, you're sitting across the table from me, and I, I have... This huge old brain sitting across from me, I just finished your book on Saturday and enjoyed it immensely. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of Thomas Merton, and it probably comes as no surprise to our listeners that I'm also a huge Bob Dylan fan. So explain to our our listeners who might not be familiar with who Thomas Merton was and why was he important then, and why is
4: he important uh, to us today? Thomas Merton was a best-selling author. Uh, His autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, published in 1948, caused a sensation. It was one of the best-selling books of uh, the early part of the 50s. He was a moral voice uh, at a time in the post-war period when the world was struggling with uh, existentialism and the fallout from World War II, the Holocaust. Merton had an unusually powerful moral voice uh, throughout the 50s and especially the 60s. He founded the Catholic Peace Fellowship with the Berrigan brothers, and he uh, also wrote extensively on issues of peace and war and uh, nuclearization. Well, you're a member of the
3: West Michigan Thomas Merton Society, and uh, you, you've published articles on Merton in the past. So why should we care about him today? And and this is going to lead into a follow-up that um, I'm, I'm hoping you'll grab this the strand and run away with it. I, th- I think there's some place in your book where you talk about someone grabbing all the strings of all the balloons and pulling them down at the same time, at, which which I, th- I thought was just
4: a wonderful, wonderful image. So, wh- why Merton today? Merton today, he is still one of the great moral voices we have had in the past. We think of people in American history like Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. Thomas Merton really was one of those those great voices. He was censored by the catholic church because of his outspokenness on issues of war and peace and uh, he was a firm anti-nuclear advocate and his books still are kind of the central texts in american literature for those issues his posthumously published book uh, peace in the post-christian era is one of the essentials for understanding where we are today in in this post-cold war period so um he is still a best-selling author and uh, if I can, I can kind of go into the uh, the issue of uh, how he got interested in Dylan. Um,
3: oh, certainly, uh, that was my my next question anyway. So you know,
4: why Bob Dylan? <laughs> well, he you would think, with Merton's background and his interest in topical issues of uh, peace and uh, n- uh, global nuclearization, you would think that he would have connected with Dylan through uh, Dylan's early topical protest music, his folk, his famous folk period from about 1961 to 64. And uh, Merton was probably familiar with that period, but that is not what really turned him on. He discovered Dylan's uh, symbolist and kind of surreal poetry from the albums, if you know these, uh, which I'm sure you do. The Mighty mighty Trilogy. uh, There you go, the, the Holy Trinity. The uh, three albums, um, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61, Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde. Merton heard those, and he heard in them what he heard in a lot of the French symbolists and the the surrealists early on, which was not just a protest about the politics of the time. He heard in those songs, uh, as many people did at the time, a protest against... The society in general, the excesses of greed and the excesses of selfishness that they saw in the society, the anti, uh, kind of an anti-corporate, anti-commercial message, you know, Dylan, uh, right? Yeah. Dylan yeah. talking about uh, flesh-colored Christs that glow in the dark that people are going to sell you and those kinds of things. Merton really connected with that. On a poetic level, he really loved the poetry in Dylan and saw it as a, as a general protest about the human condition and our fallen natures. We're coming up on the anniversary of my
3: high school graduation where I was able to take Sister Euphemia to uh, the alcove leading to the upstairs where I had the Milton Glaser poster of Bob Dylan and, and had her autograph it for me and uh, she 's the woman who taught me about dante and and shakespeare and, and what have you, and turned me on to g k chesterton so uh that that was an amazing thing but the 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 wonderful connection that um, I make with with uh, Bob Dylan is with Dylan Thomas, and that is the the very apocalyptic uh imagery that they use and that you know comes from you know the existentialism from you know going back to Gerard Manley Hopkins to uh, Kierkegaard and 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 moving forward. And you, you make a wonderful point in your book, Bob, where you relate the title of Highway 61 Revisited which everyone knows that album for featuring Like a Rolling Stone. But Highway 61 Revisited is like, well, where did that title come from? Okay, Because the entire book is like riding in a big old car with Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, barreling down the American highway and listening to all of these voices and cultural reference. But you make the point that it directly relates to *Brideshead Revisited* by Evelyn Waugh. That's really oh, fascinating. A, a,
4: another great Catholic poet, uh, yeah, writer, right? And who was also a, a mentor to Thomas Merton. Um, when Merton was working on Seven Story Mountain*, the Catholic censors uh, told him that he really needed to get a writing teacher because he wasn't prepared to write such a book. He did them one better by corresponding with Evelyn Waugh, one of the greatest prose stylists of the 20th century, and learned a lot of his writing technique from Evelyn Waugh. But that is true. One thing that we don't realize, I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but in 1964, Penguin published their reissue of um, uh, Brideshead Revisited. So it was in the culture. It was a bestseller at the time. People were discovering, rediscovering Evelyn Waugh. So I have no doubt that Dylan saw the popularity of Brideshead Revisited and thought, I'm going to name my album Highway 61 Revisited. And of course, just as Evelyn Waugh goes back to the, period between the wars nostalgically dylan is in his great irony going back to the uh the great traditions of american blues poetry and folk poetry and he's riding that highway 61 from new orleans the birth of the blues all the way up to duluth minnesota which is not far from where he was born just an hour or so from where he was born so he is making his own revisited uh trip but, of course, that had special resonance for Merton because Merton himself was a, uh, a friend uh, with Yves noir
3: Well, I mean, who d- wasn't Thomas Merton a friend with in, in that period? He was—you uh, you write about Joan Baez coming to visit with him. I mean, his, his path never really intersected with Bob Dylan personally, but uh, the, the art that Dylan was putting out there, uh, the Holy Trinity of albums that you are talking about, but also uh, before Merton passed away— He was able to enjoy
4: John Wesley Harding, my personal favorite from that era. One of the most biblical albums of all time, including uh, uh, probably more biblical than 90% of the so called Christian, uh, contemporary Christian musicians that are out there. Somebody counted, I forget what the actual number was, something like 86 biblical references in just the 12 songs on uh, John Wesley Harding. And if you want to get the exact number, you can pick up uh, Bob's book because it's definitely in there. So, and Merton, of course, uh, he did. He uh, heard that album, declared it uh, to be Dylan's best uh, just months before he died in 1968. Well, I have to tell you, I, it, it kind of reaffirms my personal
3: critic when I find out that Thomas Merton actually agrees with me on something. So that, that, that's fantastic. Uh, so tell me a little bit, um, what is the, the, the spiritual elements that appear in Dylan's music that uh, would attract someone as spiritual as Tom Merton? That is a very, very
4: deep question. Um, the spiritual elements, as I said before, was that general sense that we are all alienated and we're all in need of something higher. And I think Merton heard that in Dylan's music. Uh, you know, Dylan talks about, uh, I, I love the song, uh, I Shall Be Released, uh, where he kind of portrays a prisoner in a lonely crowd in a prison who says, I shall be released. I see my light come shining high above this wall, and uh, any day now I shall be released. It's a powerful, powerful spiritual message, and it's that kind of message that Merton heard in Dylan's music, that the world really is fallen, and that we really have this urge for transcendence. It's so interesting, because a lot of people in the 60s did not hear that message in Dylan's music. They heard kind of the chaos and the rock and roll and the nasal voice. Everybody must get stoned. Everybody must get stoned, which in itself... You've got a lot of nerve. uh, Right, Uh, which in itself is kind of interesting. Uh, If I can just tell a side story there, one of Merton's friends complained to Merton about how tired he was of social protest because he had gone to a protest. This friend had gone to a protest in Louisville and had actually had actual stones thrown at him. And Merton said, sit down. You've got to listen to this. And he played Bob Dylan's Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, which has the chorus, Everybody Must Get Stoned, <laughs> as sort right. of spiritual encouragement to him. But Merton, in the in Dylan's poetry, he heard that yearning for something higher, that yearning for getting beyond the chaos and the greed and the corruption of the world. The wonderful thing about Merton is he
3: he was a monk. He was a Trappist. He lived in a, a monastery and was trying to be a recluse, trying to be a hermit, and not being remarkably successful at that because he had friends from all over the place. I mean, Jacques Maritain was a, a very close friend of his, who is one of you know one of the individuals that uh, I, I read consistently, and I, I think it's it's amazing that he was in Gethsemane in Kentucky, right outside of Louisville. And was able to draw all of these people to him, and, and he did want to meet Dylan, but it just never occurred.
4: he uh, had a huge host of f- friends. My favorite scene in the book, which I hope people will read and enjoy, the the scene of, of uh, Merton showing a uh, Maritain showing up at Merton's hermitage outside the Abbey, and Merton sits him down to listen to Bob Dylan records. Keeping in mind that Maritain at this point is in his eighties; he was born in eighteen eighty two, so. Thomas Merton is playing Bob Dylan records for somebody that was born in the same year that that Robert Ford shot Jesse James, which I think is just wonderful. Kind of a a poetic uh, cycle, circularity there. But yeah, Merton lived in this Trappist monastery and had such a moral voice that he actually became a threat to national security. Merton was writing to peace activists. He was writing to presidents and senators. He was writing to uh, Boris Pasternak and writing to the Berrigan brothers, the FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, was concerned about all this activity, this monk living alone in in, uh, Kentucky, and they had quite a file collected on Thomas Merton by the time he died. Well, the Catholic Church also had uh, some issues. They tried to, uh, well,
3: the abbot tried to put his his thumb on uh, Merton's star, a while there and was more or less unsuccessful because he he finally moved on but uh tell me a little bit okay you're a poet you're a published poet uh you you run your own publishing house for for chapbooks and what is it about dylan that inspired merton's later
4: poetry because you you go at great length in your book to to discuss that I think it again goes back to the uh, the transcendence that he sees in that surrealism and in that symbolism. Merton, I think, in his own poetry, was striving for that kind of voice. I think Merton always struggled with having a real poetic voice, uh, and I think when he heard Dylan, it kind of opened the door to a kind of a new kind of freedom. Um, he said that he wanted to write a new book in a new way after he went through a certain crisis in early 1966. And Dylan really opened that door for him. Um, I think it gave him a new way of talking about about the world. By the time he died, Merton said that he wished he had spent more time writing in the mode of Cables to the Ace, this book of poetry that he wrote inspired by Dylan And the follow-up called The Geography of LaGuerre, Um, he wished he had spent more time writing in that creative mode because he felt that was more profitable than all of the devotional and social activist books that he had written before, which is a stunning declaration uh, by somebody. He desperately so much wanted to be a creative, poetic voice on the order of Yeats or Dylan Thomas or whoever. And I think Dylan kind of opened that door for him to really express
3: himself. Well fantastic. I'm speaking with Robert Hudson, who is a musician, a poet, has written several books, and his latest has been published by Erdman's here in the grand rapids area and it's the monks record player thomas merton bob dylan and the perilous summer of 1966 it's well worth checking out and i I could not recommend it more because I, i derive so much pleasure from reading it bob thank you so much for being here
4: thank you bruce i really appreciate it you are very good at what you do
3: so uh god bless you oh well thank you so much and for upstream this week i'm your host bruce edward walker we'll talk to you again next week
0: And that wraps up today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot where you can access Acton's official blog, bookshop, publication archives, and more. Lastly, if you have questions for the Acton Institute team that you would like answered in future segments of the podcast, leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.